Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser from MDP and Rule Breaker, Simon Erickson, and from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hello, hey, Chris. We've got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We will dip into the Fool mailbag, and as always, we'll give an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But it was a big week for beverages, so let's start with the continuing drama in the beer industry. Anheuser-Busch InBev upped its offer to buy SAB Miller to $104 billion. That's billion with a B, Jason. And it's a bit for, of scratch. For the third time, SAB Miller said no. But a little bit more intrigue, because some of SAB Miller's shareholders appear to support this offer. Well, B is for billions, and in this case, it's also <laughs> for beer, because that's what these two specialize in. It's beer. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the obvious benefits of this deal are cost savings and growth. Uh, growth, at least where uh, AB and Bev is concerned, because SAB Miller is a much smaller company. To put that into context, uh, AB and Bev brings in around $45 billion annually in sales, SAB Miller around $17 billion annually. Uh, but you were referring to uh, the sort of thank you, but no thank you. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I think when you you look at this situation, it's interesting that you, you see SAB uh, being courted here more than once. Uh, the the issue there is that you have Altria and the Santo Domingo family as the two biggest shareholders of SAB Miller. So without the sign off on at least one of two of those parties, uh, you know something is is likely to not happen. If you don't get uh, but but you know you really you really need both of them and so with Altria Altria is for it uh, the Santo Domingo family is not quite for it yet this seems like they're just sort of playing this negotiation out in public uh, more than anything I think I you know I wouldn't be surprised to see this actually happen at some point it, it seems like it's actually pretty reasonable the offer uh, that SAB uh, is receiving is is not all that bad it values the company at around 32 times trailing uh, earnings today you compare that to something like uh, AB and Bev and AB and Bev is trading around 19 times earnings today so it, it it's not as if they're two companies of equal size uh, you know SAB is is smaller than than uh, AB and Bev but uh, it's it's interesting to watch this play out in public well and they are small but we're still talking about the biggest beer maker looking to buy the second biggest beer maker. And so if it does go through at some point, I mean, we're going to see more shakeout in the beer industry, aren't we? Yes. And uh, you'll probably see continued, continued consolidation, Chris, because all the money is moving into specialty beers and higher, higher price beers, actually. And that's what's really driven the results at Constellation Brands, which I know we're talking about next. Let's move on to Constellation Brands, because the stock hitting an all-time high this week after second quarter profits came in higher than expected. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got wine, they've got spirits, but it's their beer portfolio that really got it done this last quarter. It really is, Chris. With their 2013 acquisition of the rest of Crown Imports, they 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 also acquired Grupo Modalo, which is Corona, and uh, Victoria and Modalo beer. And that beer is really... it's. Driving results, the, the company was pretty much flatlined for for a long time, and the last three years, earnings have just surged forty percent, thirty percent, and it's all a lot of it's marketing driven. Their marketing, if anyone watches TV at all, the the Corona, their one hundred twenty days of summer ads did an extremely good job of moving this product. So Constellation Brands beer business actually grabbed forty five percent 
of the of the total U.S. beer industry volume growth in the last quarter. So I mean, of the growth that's there, which isn't that much, it's slow growth industry, they're grabbing nearly half of it. So I haven't invested in alcohol. I didn't invest in tobacco. Both have generated strong returns. I've invested in pizza and, and coffee, though. But you know, <laughs> I, say, I, I mean, well, I've invested in alcohol indirectly, right? I mean, if you're contributing to the market, wouldn't you? Yeah, true. Realizing some benefits, right? Yeah, I've helped the companies. Well, and when you look at this stock, Constellation Brands, uh, I mean, up more than fifty percent in the past year. I mean, this thing's on fire. And it's expensive now, Chris. It's it, it although it's not outrageously expensive. The stock trades at around fifteen times expected EBITDA, which is in the ballpark for a high quality, reliable business where you know the cash flow is going to keep keep coming in. But that said, it's it's expensive on multiples to earnings and cash flow definitely. But obviously, Wall Street likes its position, especially in the beer market, and uh, sees more growth ahead. Yeah, it seems like beer is actually making a little bit of a comeback here. I mean, obviously, Boston beer is is continuing to do well. And I recently read where, uh, where Dogfish Head. Uh, pulled in a, a new investor as well, brought in a good amount of capital to, to help grow their operations as, uh, as well. So, I mean, I think you know we're seeing this sort of renaissance, so to speak, because of this craft beer industry. Even though it's so localized, I mean, it's it's all over the country now, and so you're just seeing a lot of beneficiaries. So true. And what what will probably happen next is they'll go international, as counterintuitive as that is, uh, because it, it's easy to sell a popular American brand in, in Europe. Say once you get some traction. Let's move to non-alcoholic beverages. Shares of Pepsi on the rise this week after third quarter profit and revenue came in better than expected. They also raised guidance for the full fiscal year, Simon. So that's the nice one-two punch we like to see. Well, if people are drinking more beer, Chris, they're certainly not drinking more carbonated beverages. <laughs> it's something that Pepsi's had to get over that there's just a secular trend in less sodas being sold and consumed, especially in North America. Pepsi saw their soda sales down 2% in North America, but non-carbonated beverages up over 10%. These are things like Gatorade, Aquafina, we've talked about Tropicana, and Pepsi's got such a good position in distribution that if they can pivot from carbonated to non-carbonated beverages, they're going to do just fine, which is what we saw this quarter. They also have the snacks, too, and it's it's not just the salty snacks. They've got Quaker Oats as well, You know, presumably something healthy. In there, Frito but we like, the we, we, we like the salty snacks. We're big fans of those in the Ericsson house, and they're actually now changing the Lay's chips to being uh, instead of in a ten ounce bag, a eight ounce bag. Uh. I saw an article in the Washington Post this week about how soda sales are declining sharply, and yet the photo showed everyone drinking that that soda company's bottled water, where the margins are quite good. I assure you. I feel like we're we're getting some uh, inadvertent lessons here from Pepsi and Constellation Brands because just as investors, we like to have a diversified portfolio. It, 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 probably no coincidence that these two companies have diversified portfolios themselves. I mean, as I said, you know, Constellation Brands, their wine division wasn't all that great. Neither was their spirits, but the beer division really lifted things. And as you said, Simon, with Pepsi, you know, they've got. Different in different segments that can offset the decline, this steady, well over a decade decline of soda consumption in the United States. Oh, yeah. And as you look at it as an investor, you see gross margins grow 120 basis points this quarter year over year. Earnings per share up 14%. Revenue is still up 7.5% when you pull out foreign exchange risk. So, yeah, if you're diversified and you can pivot, that's fine. Now, what's interesting along the food lines there is we've seen Pepsi do just a, such a good job of sort of diversifying the revenue stream. We've criticized Coca Cola a decent bit as being, you know, more pegged to the, the sodas and 
and, and getting out of, of the sodas into the non-carbonated beverages. But they also own uh, Honest Tea. And, and Honest Tea is no longer just Honest Tea. It's Honest Juice and whatnot. And they're also getting into food. So, it'll be very interesting to see you know, how Coca-Cola gets behind that and really pushes it here in the coming decade in order to diversify their revenue stream as well. True, Jason. And Coca-Cola owns 16 or $17 billion brands just in beverages alone. Amazing. So, uh, yeah, you're right. The, the, that's the, the the bottom lesson with giant companies that have distribution is they can plug different things into that distribution. Just give them time. Yum Brands is the parent company of KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell. Investors completely unimpressed with third quarter results earlier this week. Stock down around twenty percent, and. Once again, China continues to be a massive struggle for this company, Jason. Yeah, I'm not entirely convinced that we're not actually seeing a real image problem here because it seems like we've talked about Yum's China woes for like going on two years now. Mm-hmm. And and in reading through the call, I mean, there wasn't really anything good going on there. I mean, they're recovering the KFC brand slightly, but that was more than offset by a re- just a lugubrious. There you go. That's a fifty cent word. <laughs> wow. That's a good word. A lugubrious <laughs> nice. performance on the part of Pizza Hut there. Um, and so, I mean, you, you the Pizza Hut, now, just to put this in context, Pizza Hut is responsible for a third of, of China's profits. And, and China is responsible for a third of Yum's overall operating profits. So, you can see that you know when, when China runs into headwinds, they really have some problems. And they can't just say, well, you know, KFC is going to pick up the slack for Pizza Hut or vice versa. I mean, they both have to really perform or else they're going to be problems. And, and so, the company consequently guided down for their full year earnings per share guidance, expecting now growth to be low single-digit positive, where they're typically looking at like double-digit growth. And that's why the market just fled on the stock. I mean, it was like George Costanza fleeing from the apartment <laughs> yelling, <laughs> It is sad, because when they had such a bad year last year, what you can say to yourself as an investor, well, wow, next year, the year-over-year comparison should be strong. We should see a big bounce. But no, when they're down again or weak, that's that's just a one-two punch. The shares are still trading at like 20 times, 28 times full year estimates with with a big fast food, you know, maker. That's not really like that compelling of a deal at this point. (laughs) You would think after a 20% sell-off, maybe shares would look compelling, but I don't think so. Maybe too much optimism in China. China's a big country, large growing middle class, but you can't just say that everything's automatically going to work there. Well, and and this is a smaller point, but it seems like part of what happened this week for them was they were getting punished for bad guidance. I mean, this is an executive team that really was promising analysts, hey, the second half of our fiscal year is going to be a lot stronger. And as you said, the KFC comps in China were up around 2%. They were guiding for around 10%. Sure. And I think also it's poor guidance. And I think they underestimated the competitive environment there in China because they did bring that up. There are more mom and pop operations uh, taking advantage of these newfangled delivery models. Uh, so, so I think there's just far more competition there now than ever before. And, and I just don't think they, they really saw that coming. I mean, long term, I'd rather own Pepsi than Yum Brands. And interesting, they used to be together. Mm-hmm. Coming up, a struggling board of directors finally gets something right. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jeff Fisher, Jason Moser, and Simon Erickson. Third quarter profits for Domino's Pizza came in lower than expected, and shares sold off a bit, Jeff. But uh, their, their same store sales looked pretty solid. Ooh, very solid. Ten percent in the U.S. Really strong growth. What's happening with Domino's and Papa John's is a, a not so widely reported resurgence, if you want to call it that, or just outright smashing success. Domino's. Uh, pizza is up more than 600% the last five years. Papa John's is up more than 400%. Uh, 
And what's happening is they have both found a way to make the international markets work, and they're growing rapidly there, and they're doing extremely well in the U.S. as well with, actually, with online sales, with app-driven sales, and they're taking away market share from small mom and pop locations that slowly close up. So, you can't cry for Domino's. It's still up thirty percent the past year alone, and the outlook still looks good long term. Uh, at least. Uh, Next three or four years, I would guess, until maybe some competition. Yeah, we've got uh, our operations in Australia, and uh, our colleague Matt Joss, one of our analysts there, I remember when he was visiting Full HQ, he was talking about Domino's, how strong they are in Australia, and just really dominating the market. Yeah, I just wonder if eventually, we've talked about this in Motley Fool Pro for a few years, eventually is quick serve pizza that's healthier going to enter the market? I would think at some point. And sure, Domino's and Papa John's can try to get into that, but. if you're not the fresh brand, it may be, it may finally bring some competition, but that's well down the road if it happens. This week, Twitter's board of directors made it official, confirming Jack Dorsey as CEO, with Adam Bain as chief operating officer. And Jason, Twitter shares back above thirty dollars for the first time since July. So Wall Street seems to approve. Yes, and we approve at MDP as well. We hold a stake in Twitter in the portfolio, and uh, you know this is something where we've always. Felt like there was a lot of upside uh, with with a very limited downside where, where the price was. You just don't run into businesses with these kind of network effects very often. But I think the main reason why why the market is feeling a bit more op- optimistic here is that you know for the longest time uh, with with former leadership, the employees at Twitter, the people working the product, they felt somewhat constrained in what they could try, things they could experiment with to try to to help the product evolve and change um, as as you know. Demands changed, and and so they just there there were never any real awesome innovations with the product, so to speak. And now with a founder back in, in the you know in the driver's seat there, and he's giving that green light to innovate, try new things. This this is not some sacred platform that has to stay the same. And so you're seeing sort of this rebirth, I think, uh, you know, within the walls there at Twitter HQ, and, and it's certainly playing out. I mean, as a core user, I've seen over the past three months. Certainly, there's been more rolled out over the past three months than there has been over the past you know two to three years. And you know, I think the the real shining star right now is is the new moments feature that was AKA. Project Lightning, um, having messed around with it a little bit, I, I got to say this is really, really clever on a lot of fronts, and I imagine that we'll continue to see it do nothing but get better. So, so certainly, I think 2016 is shaping up to more than likely be a little bit of a better year for Twitter. Shares of GoPro getting hit on Thursday after one Wall Street firm put out a report cutting their price target on GoPro's stock by more than 40 percent. And Simon, they're basically calling GoPro's newest camera a flop. How yeah. bad is this? Ah, this is the Hero 4 session they don't like. This is GoPro's newest model that's out there. It's a very small camera, but even GoPro themselves has lowered the price from $400 to $300. Uh, we saw a prominent investment bank cut their price target for GoPro down to $35 and $62. So, a lot of hesitation on the company right now. I think, though, the bigger story on this is whether or not GoPro is able to expand from their action sports enthusiasts. Um, maybe we go amateur instead of GoPro on this. <laughs> but there's only they, they have no problem selling cameras. They sold 6.4 million cameras over the last 12 months to sports enthusiasts. But there's only so many people that are willing to jump off of mountains and video record it for everybody. And I think that GoPro has got to start monetizing other things. Like they've got GoPro licensing now, similar to Shutterstock, uh, where you can actually put content up and get, get money for that. 
Drones, I think, is a really big opportunity. They're going to be launching their first quadcopter in the first part of next year. And then the, the one that I'm really interested in is going to be the virtual reality one. Facebook is going to have an Oculus Rift commercially available the first part of next year already, and GoPro is already starting to work with Google to develop a 16-camera array to capture 360-degree footage. I think it's going to be interesting, but we're in the low between waves right now, Chris. we got to see if these new things are going to take off. We're not too far off from the holidays. Uh, it seems like this is yet another year where they kind of need one of their gadgets to be the must-have gadget. Yeah, definitely the story for these guys, especially right now. And and again, you're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the next year. I think the story for GoPro is outside of action sports, though. Can they keep that momentum going to other areas? Shares of the container store falling more than 20% this week after second quarter profits fell 62%. They are really spending a lot of money over there, Jason. They are, and, and you know they really have to. They've got to figure out a way to gin up interest and, and convince people that you know they need organization in their lives. I mean, it's it's just uh, you know I, I feel like this is a company that would have been better off staying private. Unfortunately, I don't think it was really up to them. Uh, you know, Leonard Green and Partners, I think, holds a, a large enough stake in the business where this was uh, something that was bound to happen. You know, I, I recently wrote of of investing mistakes that I had made and lessons that I had learned uh, from those mistakes. I think that's always a, a good idea. One of one of those uh, stories was that you know you can find a business that has lots of wonderful qualities like ownership. They're invested in the company. They they have a great culture. They're customers who love the product, etc. But those don't always necessarily make good investments. And I think the container store probably falls into this type of investment. It is a good company. It's a good business. It has good people. They look out for their employees. A lot of positives there. But I think that when you look at the fundamentals of a business, there's not a big market opportunity. I think they are pushing very high ticket items that, uh, you know, when you talk about a strained consumer, I mean, it's just going to be very difficult to convince someone that they need to finance a closet project. And that's really what's happening here with these $10,000 plus big ticket items that they're selling. So uh, they may run into a situation here where they may have to raise some equity to help help grow because they, they are faced with some debt. Constraints and if they do that, then shareholders are going to feel some more pain there. So I'm not necessarily convinced that this is you know the bottom for them. I'd, I'd probably stay away. We got about 30 seconds left. Uh, you have an underrated container. A lot of containers in the world. There are a lot of containers. I'm going to go with the ball mason jar or like a jelly jar. You know what I'm talking about sure. there? You know people they'll, they'll can vegetables, but you can also drink beverages out of them. <laughs> like it versatile. Simon. Thermally insulated coffee mug. Always a winner. Jeff? A pizza box. You can. <laughs> <laughs> it is underrated. Steve Broido behind the glass? I'm going with the acrylic baseball display container. <gasps> what? How many baseballs do you have, Steve? Well, zero, but All I'm right. daring to dream here. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. So, how much of investing is skill and how much is luck? We will tackle that question next with our guest this week. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. All the best things in life are free You can keep them for the birds and bees I want money Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Michael Mobison is Managing Director and Head of Global Financial Strategies at Credit Suisse. He's worked in the financial service industry for more than 25 years, and he's the author of several books, including his latest, The Success Equation, Untangling Skill and Luck in Business, Sports, and Investing. Motley Fool columnist Morgan Housel recently talked with Mobison about investing, and he kicked off the conversation by asking Mobison about the role that luck and skill play in investing. Well, um, 
you know, the way I might think about this, Morgan, is to take a step back. And if you consider a continuum from, you know, one side being all luck activities, so, you know, roulette wheels or lotteries, and the other side being all skill, pure skill, perhaps, you know, running race or something like that, or chess would be over there. You can array activities between those extremes. Um, if you do that, it turns out investing is, is toward the luck side of the continuum. But I have to say really quickly as to why that is, and I think it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit confusing. The idea is, is what we called the paradox of skill. It wasn't my idea, but it's, that's what we called it. And the paradox of skill says in activities where both skill and luck are important, it's often the case that as skill increases, luck becomes more relevant in your outcomes. Right? So that doesn't seem to make sense. And the key idea is to, dis- is to think about skill on two, across two dimensions. The first is absolute, and the second is relative. And I think that what we can say is we look around the world in you know, business or sports or certainly the world of investing, absolute skills never been higher. So that's the key thing to emphasize is most investors have extraordinary information at their fingertips, <clears throat> computing power, and so forth. And, and certainly if I, if I put you back in the 1960s, say, or 70s, with the resources at your disposal, you could probably run circles around the competition. But the second dimension is relative skill. And I think what we've also seen is that relative skill has narrowed in a lot of domains, which is to say the difference between the very best participants and the average participants is less today than it was a generation or two before. So the skill, the, the absolute skill improvement gets offset by competition. So, so how does- a great deal is being left to luck, but it's not because participants aren't skillful. It's actually because they're highly skillful, but their skill is offsetting. And uh, so as a consequence, yeah, luck, luck seems to, uh, to play a very, exert a very strong role. Now, I'll say one other thing that any careful analysis I've ever seen of um, past money manager performance requires, to explain the results, requires differential skills. So I don't want to, uh, anybody to understand that all investors are, you know, that everyone's the same. That's clearly not the, not the case. There is a, there is remains differential skills, just not as much differential skills, say, as uh, twenty or, or forty years ago. So let's say we have two investors. They've both they've both outperformed the market by two percentage points over the last ten years. How could you come to the conclusion that one of them was lucky and one of them was skillful? Well, if they both outperformed by two hundred basis points, they may may both have been skillful. But you know, one of the ways I would try to address that. Uh, question is to look at their process. And um, specifically, we know in realms where there's a lot of luck or it's probabilistic in terms of outcomes that an emphasis on process probably makes the most sense. And for me, the, the key components to a quality process would have you know, th- sort of three elements. One is an analytical component. So are, does it appear that their analytical process and finding uh, edge and their portfolio construction principles make sense and are repeatable? The second thing I'd want to see is kind of behavioral. So do they understand sort of the behavioral mistakes that many of us make, and are they taking steps, concrete steps, to manage or mitigate those things? And the third, I would say, is organizational, which is, um, you know, we know that um, basically in any business, but certainly in the investing business, there can be agency costs. Uh, is that organization structured in such a way that those are, those are uh, minimized to the degree they can be? So if those three kind of core components seem like they're pretty good, pretty vibrant, um, then I would be inclined to say that there there is some differential skill there and 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 potentially persistently differential skill. You read about reversion to reversion to the mean in the book. The idea that uh, if 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 you have an extreme event that's out that's an outlier, we're gonna the the odds increase that that the next event will be closer to average. But when when we're looking at financial markets, do do things change over time? And what comes to mind for me is. 
the CAPE ratio, which is one of the, which is, you know, it makes so much sense intuitively. But when you look at the data over the last, I think, 25 years, it's been above its long-term average 95% of the time. So do things change over time or how powerful is reversion to the mean even over really long periods of time? It's an it's a awesome question. Um, the first thing to say is uh, that reversion to the mean occurs anytime the correlation between two variables over some period of time is less than one, right? So if you any correlation that's less than one for the same thing over time, if it's less than one, then you're going to get some sort of re- reversion to the mean. So that's the first thing just to point out. And, and going back to the image, hopefully you still have in your mind of the luck-skill continuum, all luck one side, all skill the other side, there's another nice little heuristic you can use, which is if your activity is on the all-luck side, then you should expect, expect complete reversion to the mean, right? So in other words, the expected value of the next outcome is some measure of the average. And if you're on the pure skill side, there is no reversion to the mean at all, right? So it, it, that means the same thing happens over and over. And so the rate of reversion to the mean is actually related to where you are in that continuum. But to your point, and your point's an incredibly important one, which is are the means themselves stable? And if the means move around, uh, then sort of all bets are off as to where you're actually going back to. And <clears throat> price earnings multiples are a particularly interesting example of this. And you know, we've written a fair bit about this over the years. But the question is, is that a, is a, a consistent measure or not? And one of the ways to think about that would be to decompose the elements, the core elements of a price earnings multiple, right? Some things you and I could probably just tick off quickly would be, you know, equity risk premium expectations, inflation expectations, uh, real interest rates, growth expectations. And you can plot a lot of these things as time series. And, you know, provided that they're moving around a fair bit, there's no real reason to believe that the PE should be some sort of magic average of time. So the, the historical numbers may or may not have any relevance for what's going on today. Now, it turns out that, you know, numbers in the mid-teens tend to be, they seem to be sort of attractors, the multiples tend to get there, but it is very, very contingent on those variables, and you have to think about those variables as you're thinking about what the appropriate PE multiple is. So that, to me, is sort of the way to think about it, is if, if the components, the underlying components are moving around a lot, uh, there's no reason to believe that what happened before is going to be relevant for what's happening today. Within that context, do you think investors get too caught up looking at long series of historical data and thinking that the future is going to resemble the past when maybe the averages do change over right. time? Right. And so the, the relevance of history probably depends on lo- a lot on what you're looking at. So for some things, it can be quite you know reasonable thing to look at, other things that might be more challenging. <clears throat> Another a really interesting example would be dividends and dividend yields. I mean, it was until the 1950s that stocks always yielded more than bonds, right? In fact, when the yields on stocks went below the yield on bonds, many of the old timers, and this is the late 1950s, sort of said, this is the end of markets, you know, it's going to be horrible. Mm-hmm. And what's happened in subsequent years, of course, is then you know, that continued to be the case. The dividends kept drifting lower um, as bond yields went were, were stayed above them. And then things like buybacks got introduced in the early 1980s, and now there's a sort of total payback, total shareholder yield, which has obscured sort of the underlying series. So you just have to be very careful about where you apply historical series. It's going to have more relevance in some areas than others. And uh, like you said, if you're just blanketly using them for everything, I think it's going to be, it can be very, very misleading, and, uh, and you're going to come to the wrong conclusions in many cases. So as investors... I, no one wants to admit that their success may have been partially 
due to luck. No, it, it's, it's very difficult for people to admit that. People want to attribute their own successes to their own skills. Even if we know that uh, some percentage of the investing population who has, been excess, who has been successful was due to luck. So what would you recommend for investors to look rationally and objectively at their own process and their own skill to separate skill from luck? You know, the first thing is, and I don't know if that's your experience that you're reflecting, but my, my own experience is that many great investors and really, really many great business people as well are actually reasonably, reasonably open to the idea that, that luck helped them out at some point. And um, if, you know, if you read interviews with great investors, almost all of them will, will suggest that luck played a role in their outcomes. But fees uh, are never refunded. <laughs> what's that? Fees are never refunded. The fees though. are refunded. No, but I'm saying yeah, that's, that's right. But still, I mean, they're, they're um, yeah, so the, but, but. Yes, that's a slightly different topic, but yeah, that's right. And um, so, and and the other point is to make, um, I think, almost to state the obvious in realms again where luck and skill both contribute to outcomes. Whenever you see an outlier, right, which is a great performance, it has to be lots of luck and lots of skill together, right? Because either one of them alone will not carry you. So you need both of those components. And so outliers is another example. You know, streaks in sports are a great example where if you look at all the players with, you know, for example, baseball players with hitting streaks. 30 or more games, you know, their career batting average is over 300. They're really good players. And um, as a consequence, you could say something like not all skillful players have streaks, but all the streaks are held by skillful players, right, because it's skill plus luck together. But going back to, to your question, I would again um, be a broken drum and to say that the key there is to reexamine process and say, is the process that we're adhering to um, uh, economically sound and you know, uh, repeatable. Those are the key things. Again, analytical, behavioral, and organizational. The second thing I would probably think a lot about is what other uh, constraints get introduced into the, into the whole picture. <clears throat> and one example would be uh, something like size. You know, as, as organizations get larger, it sometimes is quite difficult to invest in the same way or the same style or the same opportunity set. So that's another thing to bear in mind is that, you know, what, what may have gotten you to, to, to one point um, was because the opportunities were, were such that when you get to a certain size, the opportunity sets are not quite the same. It's, it's more challenging going forward. So, yeah, focus on process, I think, is the ultimate answer. To that it's a, very, it's a great question, but that's how I do it. My final question. You've been working in the financial services industry for a long time, and you've had a great perch to research and think about the industry as a whole. What has surprised you the most, or what has been the biggest shift in your thinking throughout your career? I mean, I guess the things that are really interesting to me. One is that you know we went from in 1980 basically 100% an actively managed industry to now again this blend between actively managed, almost closet indexing and, and um, passive investing indexing and ETFs. And that's an interesting question: is about if that ecosystem, that change in that ecosystem, what repercussions that has for markets, market efficiencies, and opportunity sets going forward. The second thing I think is really a fascinating one has been really the rapid change in technology, not only to enable people to access information and uh, to trade, for example, more cost-effectively and so forth, but even from here, you know, this notion of uh, do, we, do we continue to have quantitative strategies or can quantitative strategies take more and more uh, away from what humans are doing today? I think that's a really fascinating question, or you could even flip it on its head and say, going forward, what elements will humans add to the investment process that computers can't do or algorithms can't do? So to me, there are some really big changes 
they're probably interrelated with one another. But uh, that, that's the biggest change. And you know, I go back to when I started in this business, you know, literally in my training program, there's a guy that worked with an analyst who used spreadsheets, not like computer spreadsheets, physical spreadsheets <laughs> to do all the analyst models, right? To, from that to where we are today is really astounding. I mean, fax machines weren't used. Certainly, obviously, there was no internet. PCs were rarely used and how all that's rapidly changed. So to me, those are a couple of things that I, I think are, have been such big changes, watershed changes, and uh, where they really haven't, we don't really know how exactly how they're going to play out. That was fascinating. Michael, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Morgan. Coming up, we'll dip into the full mailbag and give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. We'll go out and spend all of you. Blue money, blue money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio once again, Jeff Fisher, Jason Moser, and Simon Erickson. Radio at fool.com is our email address. That's radio at fool.com. Question from Clayton Kearns in Los Angeles. I'm 26 years old and new to investing. My personality has always been aggressive, so when I hear you guys talk about certain companies and how amazing they're doing, I want to go and buy all of them. My challenge is twofold. First, I'm not sure how much diversification is too much. I currently hold eight different positions consisting of many of your rule breaker stocks. P.S. I love that service. Second, I feel the need to load up on certain stocks quickly because I want to capture as many gains as I possibly can before the price gets too high. Would dollar cost averaging be the way to go from my situation? Jeff, I'll kick it to you first, but first, I'll just say, Hey, Clayton, you're 26 years old, man. Slow down. You you have decades and decades. No need to go too quickly. It's outstanding that you are investing, and I believe you should dollar cost average, especially given your age. As your as your savings grow and as your income goes up, put more and more into the market and do it gradually. Put it it put it in every two weeks or every month. And secondly, you only hold eight positions. You could safely hold, in my opinion, 20, 30, or even more. And over time, you're going to see that. Probably the biggest mistake you can make in most cases is to sell a good company, to sell it too soon, especially at your age. Hold, let your winners run. Your losers will become inconsequential, and your winners will make your life financially. I mean, it's it's really true. Sam? Yeah, first of all, Clayton, thanks for the shout out on Rule Breakers. Uh, we love you being a part of the service, too. I agree with what Jeff said. You've got to let your winners run. We look at this a lot in Rule Breakers. Our batting average of, of number of picks that actually outperform the market is typically between only 40 and 50 percent. Uh, which is less than half, but we're still outperforming the market by an average return of about 80% versus 40% for the S&P. So, it's the good companies that continue to outperform over time that compound returns and help your wealth. Yeah, a couple thoughts. I think if you're rule-breaking investing, number one, that's awesome. Number two, that's where you want to probably diversify more. Um, you know, we talk about in Stock Advisor all the time. You can have any twenty to forty different stocks, and you could be well diversified. Um, another thing to think about too: dollar cost averaging. I think we probably all dollar cost average if you think about it, because if you're contributing to your company's retirement plan or uh, you know the, in, any sort of IRA or retirement plan that you have, typically that's something where that money is coming out of your paycheck every couple of weeks, and that is a form of dollar cost averaging as well. But either way, I think dollar cost averaging is certainly a great way to do it. All right. Final thing, Clayton, I'll throw in here, Chris. Since you're only 26 and you said in your note, heck of a market right now to step into because the market's been down lately. But really, you should be rooting for a down market because you have the bulk of your savings to to make yet and to invest yet. So, you're a net buyer of stocks the next 
10, 20 years, you want lower prices. Uh, before we get to the stocks on our radar, I just want to say, if you're enjoying Motley Fool Money, hey, check out our other podcasts. The Motley Fool has four different other podcasts you can listen to. They're all available for free on iTunes, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, Player FM, anywhere you find spoken word podcasts. Market foolery, Motley Fool Answers, industry focus, and rule breaker investing, a whole range of topics. And again, they're all free, so check them out. Let's get to the stocks on our radar. We'll bring in our man Steve Broda from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. You know, Chris, as I received the email confirmation today that my recent shipment of Charmin toilet paper had been left at our house, <laughs> it got me thinking how much I really love Amazon. And while it's no secret that's the stock on my radar this week, and I'll tell you why, ticker is AMZN. Uh, Amazon is far, far beyond just an e-commerce retail play, though, and I think we're starting to really recognize that. You know, they're they're having their Amazon Web Services reinvent reinvent conference, and they're talking about you know this new platform that they're entering into with the Internet of Things and making uh, you know devices from cars and turbines to sensor grids and light bulbs and more connecting to Amazon Web Services to communicate. Uh, then you look at the fact that Amazon Web Services is now a seven plus billion dollar business with more than a million active enterprise customers. This is just a of a company. I think its best days are still to come. Steve? Uh, my question is, is Amazon perpetually overpriced? I hear that criticism all the time. It's always overpriced. Right. And I, I think that argument generally comes from looking at it just as a pure e-commerce play. And I think what we're seeing now, they've lifted the hood, shown us a bit more about what Amazon Web Services can do and what it will do. And I think the price is, is a very fair one. Simon? Uh, Chris, first of all, happy birthday to my dad. His birthday today hey, in Houston, Texas. Shout out to him. Very nice. Thanks for giving me a chance to do that. Back to the stocks. <laughs> Stock on my radar is Hortonworks. Ticker is HDP. This is not currently a recommendation in any of our Motley Fool services, but they're one of the leaders in driving the adoption of Hadoop. Um, files are getting very large these days for big data because they're, they're now tera and petabyte sizes. And Hadoop is distributed processing and storage is a more efficient way to get data that you need. And I think that uh, they've got the open source uh, kind of component of this figured out. They make their money on the service and support. This is one that's definitely on my radar. Steve? How big will my next hard drive be? Because right now I can get eight terabytes. What's the next one? What's the next size that's coming my way? Nine terabytes. I'd say at least ten times bigger, Steve. Depending on where you are right now. All right, Jeff Fisher, we got about thirty seconds left. All right, we've talked about it this week. This might make Jason happy. Twitter, I've started to look at. TWTR, twenty-one billion dollar market value, which is not that big given their their brand and their size in the market. And if they just start to monetize their traffic in some better ways, better days ahead for them, possibly. So, I started to look. The one thing is their financials are nowhere near Facebook's when Facebook had the revenue that Twitter has right now. Facebook was solidly profitable. Twitter is still kind of a mess financially. Steve? Who are you following on Twitter right now? Uh, National Geographic, Smithsonian. Steve, three stocks. You got one you like? I like Hadoop. I don't know. <laughs> Hortonworks. Hortonworks. That's the one. I like Hortonworks. All right, guys. Thanks for being here. That's going to do it for this week's show. We will see you next week.